Welcome back. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. And Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. We are happy to be bringing you the Peds Ortho Podcast again live from IPOS 2023. This is going to be the start of our second episode, so the second release. Uh, just too much content for one episode, Carter. There is. We're going to be doing the same style for this episode. We'll be going just sort of straight from one faculty member or guest to the next. And uh, everyone's been having a good time. There's Top Gun last night. The winners haven't been announced yet, but we got some inside information that there were some great costumes, 80s hairband, some uh, overly revealing skeletons. Yeah, overly revealing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so some really creative stuff, and I think they keep upping the ante there. But yeah, that, that's such a great uh, such a great way, the Top Gun contest, to bring our residents in. So um, I remember the pride. Uh, I, I don't actually have the pride of ever winning. Uh, I, I like to think maybe I came close. Uh, but truthfully, uh, I, I remember who won our year. It's a huge honor um, to win. And I know there's a there's a plaque up front with the past winner. So we will announce uh, the winner uh, on air later. We'll, it'll be re- revealed live later today. And uh, we'll get into that, so that'll be exciting. And I think we should give a shout-out to, uh, it was Ken Illingsworth, right? Ken Illingsworth, that's right. Yep. This episode is sponsored by Depew Synthes. We will hear a little bit more from them later on. So with that, let's get back to the content. Let's do it. We are back. This is Craig Lauer with the Peds Ortho Podcast. I'm joined uh, by Carter Clement. Hey, guys. And our favorite friend of the podcast. Uh, Don't tell the others, uh, Dr. Sankar. But we have Woody Sankar here, um, who is just uh, catching us up on all of the highlights from the hip sessions that he did today, which sounds like they were a big hit. Anyway, Woody, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, fun when the last time I got to do this with you guys when we did that uh, journal club. And uh, it's great to have you guys on site. It's awesome to be back in a full live in-person meeting. And we've done a little bit of this, but this is like back to what iPods used to be with uh, people milling around, shaking hands, catching up. It's awesome. So great to have you guys here. Well, for the listeners, at home, maybe we could just take one of those cases. I know we're not going to put up an x-ray or ultrasound, but maybe just describe what the case was and let's kind of walk through maybe your treatment algorithm for a hip that is maybe starting to prove to be difficult to treat closed. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it would be great, obviously, for everybody here to be able to see these cases because it was fun. But um, there were a couple things we kind of touched on. One is kind of the hip that is just not reducing very well. It kind of gets into the acetabulum but doesn't fully center. It's kind of sitting there with an alpha angle that's kind of plateauing. It's not what you want, and you're at, like, four weeks. Now you're at, like, six weeks, you know, and, and the family's getting a little tired of it, and you're getting a little frustrated about it uh, and, and kind of giving you some options. And I think one of the things that kind of came out in the panel is, Everybody has a different tolerance for this stuff, and and, uh, some people say, you know, if it's not getting there by four or five weeks, you know, this dreaded pavlic harness disease, i gotta, I got to prevent that thing from happening, so we're going to have to take this kid to the operating room, and um, I think uh, one of the things that came out, there's another school of thought, and there's uh, people, myself included, who thinks that um, pavlic harness disease is a little bit oversold in terms of its prevalence and severity, and that uh, there may be a plan B and a C beyond uh, just the pavlic harness, and so 
uh, one of the things was some of these really just tough cases, just sticking with it, trying different orthoses. Um, in my own practice, I tell people that uh, DDH braces are a little bit like running shoes. You know, um, for some people, will always get injuries if they run in, in Nike, and then if they run in Asics, they do well. I, I think kind of the same thing. Some braces just don't match certain people. Um, but if you have some creativity and some some different tools in the toolbox, sometimes you can get the right fit for that patient and get that hip to respond. So we showed in a couple of cases if you're persistent, maybe you're a little creative, switching to a rigid abduction orthosis. Uh, there's several rigid orthoses, so not just a plastizote, but you know, an Ilfeld brace, which I really like and have written about, uh, and even a case that I showed a tubigen splint on uh, that you can get some of these hips to do. So that was one. Another case is femoral nerve palsy, which are always a challenge. You know, what do you do with that situation? You know, the teaching is try to get, try to stop it, get it to recover, and then kind of start pretty quickly soon thereafter. But like, what do you do if that also doesn't work? And the kid's got a palsy again, and, and you got the pavlic harness, uh, that's what you've used. So we talked about, again, other options for that, really thinking a little bit outside the box in terms of uh, what braces are out there that can be used that maybe don't control the knee yeah. um, and allow the knee to bend free, which makes it easier to monitor and maybe maybe uh, influences the femoral nerve last. So uh, things like that. We talked about bigger kids and how those can be a challenge. We talked about smaller kids and how that doesn't work very well with fit. And then residual display, which is always a, <laughs> an interesting topic. How much do you follow these kids? When do you, you know, when do you intervene? So uh, in the case that you described of this child that's not making progress in the pavlic over four weeks or kind of has plateaued, are you talking in terms of their ASTAB or coverage percentage is, say, 50% or or less? They're less than that cover and they're still not making progress? Yeah, so a little bit. I would say typically uh, in the case I showed and also in my experience, I would say you're kind of hanging out at like 40, 43%, 45%, mm-hmm. but the alpha angle's sitting there at like 58, yeah. 56, but the kid's getting older and you know, we don't talk about this enough, but the alpha angle of 60 is normal at three months, but really at five or six months, your alpha angle should be more than that. Right. So as the kid's getting older, like anything else, and it's like, like the bar, it's actually should be getting raised a little bit. And when you're just sitting there at 57, 58 degrees in a four month old, you know, you're not, you know, you're probably losing a little ground if you're staying exactly the same. So those are the hips that, you know, you want to just push them over the finish line. You know, you're yeah. close, it's reduced, it's in there, but it's just stalling out. Uh, and sometimes just a totally different mechanistic approach to it. Uh, holding the hip rigidly instead of the dynamic brace uh, of the pavlet can be helpful. You know, we don't talk about the differences in ligamentous laxity in these kids. And so the one size fits all orthosis may not make the most sense for every single kid. Uh, do you use an Ilfeld? So it sounds like in your indication, yeah. or original, original orthosis, abductor orthosis would be useful in a case where it is already reduced. It's just not. It's just maybe a little subluxated. It kind of needs a little more force or more rigidity to hold it in there. Um, would you ever use it in a case that you haven't seen reduced at all? Yeah, I have. Um, for sure. So I use lots of braces uh, in my practice. Um, as I mentioned already, and, uh, the rigid brace that I like the most is kind of my first line rigid brace, if you will, is the Ilfeld brace, which has a kind of a cuff that goes around the thighs. For those of you that haven't seen it, there's a little metal bar that uh, connects the cuffs kind of uh, you know between the kids' legs, like you would think of like a Petri cast um, kind of bar. And then there's a little strap that goes around the waist, but there's nothing up around the shoulders. There's nothing around it. So actually, families like it a lot because they can put onesies on their kid, even if the brace is on 24-7. Um, but what I love about that brace is two things. It's adjustable, so I can unlock it with an Allen wrench and dial in the amount of abduction and lock it, which is great, rather than the plastic braces, which are, you know, you just strap them and the kids are pinned out really wide. Yeah. Um, and the other reason I like it is it's open in the back, so you can ultrasound in the brace, um, which is really helpful if you're obviously trying to make sure the hip is in the joint. Yeah. So I use them for the Ilfeld brace for several indications. One is for a failed pavlic where I think the reason is lack of stability, which admittedly is, is a little bit of a, you know, 
know, kind of your intuition is not a great test for that kind of thing. But if I think the kid's lax and it's a, it's that, I do use it for um, irreducible hips. Um, there are, it doesn't always work, but, and I certainly would tell people that success rate is more modest, maybe 50, 60%. But even our IGI data with irreducible hips showed 60% success with the Pavlik. I think that the difference between the rigid brace and the Pavlik is if you need to stretch that adductor a little bit over time, you can just dial it out a little bit more and lock it week after week for two or three things to get it to open up, and then maybe you can get the hip to reduce. It doesn't always work, but but it can work that way. And I think in those really tight hips where you don't have much abduction at all, the Pavlik harness is not going to stretch that out. Yeah. Um, so, so I do use those. And then I actually use it as my post-op brace after an anterior open reduction because those hips can get a little stiff, as you know, from the intra-articular work. And if you tighten up the caps a little bit too much, and so I don't like them so widely abducted after they come out of the spike. And I actually purposely adduct them relatively. I'll bring them to like 40 degrees of abduction rather than maybe 60 that they were in the oh, cast. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, the HDI data was saying you can have 60% success with a rigid? With an irreducible hip, with a pavlik. With a pavlik? Yeah, with a pavlik. Yeah. Okay, so, so irreducible on exam. Correct. Okay, correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and the thing about irreducibility, that term, you know, as we take it with a grain of salt, like, as we all know, you hold a hip, baby cries, it doesn't feel irreducible, and then 30 minutes later, the kid's having a bottle and is basically falling asleep, and that same hip now all of a sudden feels reducible. So that's irreducible at the time you walked in. Are they really irreducible? Probably not, by definition, because if the hip went in, yeah, then, then it was. Now, there's probably a lot of listeners at home right now thinking themselves, goodness, I've never seen an Ilfeld before. Um, I have not heard of doing it the way that Dr. Sankar is describing. And they're probably feeling a little bit inadequate or unprepared to do things that way. Maybe worth talking about other opinions yeah. on the panel and just highlighting the fact that not a lot of people agree. And uh, you kind of have to do what seems to make sense and what you have seen work. But don't not be afraid to open other ideas. Yeah, you can do whatever works as long as you do it my way. It's usually what I <laughs> Now, um... So uh, yeah, no. There's a lot of there's a lot of difference, and these are all just fantastic uh, practitioners who take really good care of patients. Um, but there's definitely a school of thought in, in the infantile hip world where, like, you know, they're kind of moving a little bit more toward operative treatment and saying, you know, listen, if that hip doesn't go in easily, if this isn't a three week thing and the hip is in, and I'm starting to get really a lot of improvement, I'm going to open this hip and convince myself that this hip is. All, all the way in that it could possibly the reduction is as concentric it can be and I, I, I think that's fair it's not how I practice but it's um, I think there are very good practitioners who, who are along that school of thought and those are people that tend to be a little bit quicker as you might imagine to abandon a brace and a little bit more eager to open a hip that maybe I or maybe other people might try close even if we did go to the operating room so you can see that bias like anything uh, we have the same you know biases in trauma you know where people are a little bit more likely to, to put in and get that six-year-old or five-year-old moving a little bit and other people that say, listen, I'm going to try to avoid some implants here and a second anesthetic. And, you know, that's what makes our specialty fun as long as we're continuing to move in a better direction and hopefully getting data to drive our decisions going forward. If we didn't have controversies, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that fun. So, so I think it's part of the fun. So let me, let me paint the picture here for the audience. We are sitting in the main hall of the meeting. We're in this uh, fancy podcast booth, and we are surrounded right now by hip braces and harnesses and, and a few moderately dolls. creepy baby yeah. dolls. Yep. And, and, and one so, that's just a lower half. Yeah. <laughs> just a lower half of a baby yeah. doll. 
uh, extra creepy. And so, um, this is a Barlow. So you had a tough challenge today yep. teaching people who already know how to do this bracing and harness treatment for the most part. You know, it's a little harder than teaching an intern or a medical student how to put on a harness where you can just start from scratch. So what are the sort of high-level teaching points that you think yeah. are important to bestow to people who know the basics of how to put on a harness? Yeah, thanks. So, so um, we did this uh, new thing this year uh, at IPOS called Pavlik on the Go. For those of uh, you guys who have been uh, to IPOS in the past, we've had a Ponsetti on the Go. And what that means is basically you can pop in uh, during this while faculty people are in there. You can put on a couple of club foot casts, you can get your hands uh, dirty a little bit, and then kind of go off on your own time. So we did this this year with a, a Pavlik on the go, and what that really meant was it's like a non-operative hip dysplasia on the go. So we had uh, several people in there. Uh, Pablo Castaneda uh, had his butterfly ultrasound, which is a um, little handheld ultrasound probe that he was demonstrating uh, that hooks up to his iPhone and uh, had some baby models and was kind of showing kind of the mechanics of how to do that. And then to complement that, um, I was leading a session on bracing. And so, you know, it's like one of those things that you can look stuff up in a book, but it, it kind of looks like this weird thing. And unless you kind of get your hands on it and uh, see how it works, then you're missing out a little bit. So, you know, I think you're right. A lot of people know how to put on a Pavlik harness. Um, I think there were some people that were putting on a Pavlik harness for the first time, which is fine. Um, but we also brought a lot of different braces. So as you said, we're surrounded by several Chucky S dolls and um, several braces. So we had a lot of stuff that I would say even some mid-practic, mid-career uh, practicing surgeons came up and said, I've never seen this brace before. I've never seen this brace before. And the truth is, you know, we're pretty pigeonholed into the pavlik harness in North America, but you go around the world and there's a lot of different devices used for TDH. And when there's a lot of different devices, it means that all of them are imperfect, but that all of them also work. And so uh, sure enough, we went through a lot of braces. So we had, you know, most people are familiar with a plastazote kind of plastic abduction brace with the foam straps. So we had those out. We've modified that a little bit, our institution to drill holes and have compliance monitors in it, kind of the way the spine folks do. But we also had a tubingen splint, uh, which is a brace that I've learned more about over the last five or six years. Uh, first from some patients that actually uh, came to see me who were immigrated to the United States. And I was like, what is this? And then I learned about it. And then uh, it turns out it's very frequently used in Germany. And I, I educated myself on that. So that can be a neat brace. Uh, in certain situations. So I've used that in my practice for kids that you put on enough Pavlix, there'll be some kids that just don't tolerate it. Again, back to that running shoe analogy, they mm -hmm. they just don't like it and they're screaming and they don't have the femoral neuropalsy, everything's going fine, but they just hate it. And so I use that and, uh, and have had some success with that. So that's kind of a funny looking brace. It's got a um, uh, kind of a harness around the body uh, and that hooks up to uh, a lower part that has a plastic kind of cuff that holds the legs abducted and then in these little beads that you can tighten those front straps the way you do a Pavlik strap. Um, and then we talked about the Ophel brace, which I've already kind of talked about a little bit, uh, which is a brace I really like. Uh, again, it's got two cuffs, a bar, controlled by an Allen wrench, but you know, the, the participants of the Pavlik on the go like, could put their hands on it, they could pick it up. That We had dolls, so they like set it uh, on the dolls and they wonder why it didn't fit and we talked about how to make adjustments so that's really cool to have that experience because you know when you're a practitioner you know you, you got to walk in there and like pretend like you know what you're doing to these like new moms who are, who are pouring tears on the on the on the floor because their, their baby already is, you know, imperfect and needs to be treated in a brace. And so, you know, walking in there with a little bit of confidence about this and like how the brace goes on, I think can be really valuable. And I think the message that was well taken was just that there's a lot of tools in the toolbox for infantile hip dysplasia. And it's not just Pavlik and then an operation. There are, there are plans B's and C's and D's and, and it's nice to know what's out there so that you can do the best for your patients. Perfect. 
Well, um, I want to say thank you for joining us. This has been really informative. I hope everyone at home learned something. And uh, come come by next year and get your hands on some of these braces and learn what you can about non-operative treatment of DDH. Uh, before we go out, Dr. Sankar, you think you give us a little Velcro pull for the list? Oh, yeah. Home? Oh, yeah. We'll try to make it a loud one, folks. <laughs> All right. Ready? One, two. Turn the volumes up. Oh, yeah. Here we go. We're cranked. Oh, oh it's like yeah. music for our ears. Being in clinic. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks, guys. Take it easy. Is this thing on? Yeah, and it's recording. Good morning, everyone. We are here on the <laughs> Thursday morning of IPOS. We are back in our uh, fancy podcast booth in the main hall. We're joined by Dr. Jennifer Bauer. We just finished a great session. Uh, we covered a lot of topics, osteochondromas, Down syndrome, some mucopolysaccharidosis. So we're going to try to boil it down to a few really tangible takeaways for you guys. Um, so, Dr. Bauer, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of what you thought were the highlights of your session? Yeah, thanks. This was a new session this year, and it was a way to look at patients in a more holistic fashion. So although I'm a spine surgeon, I know a lot of people aren't uh, necessarily operating on spine or even the cervical spine in these children, but no matter if they have hip problems or knee problems or leg problems, you always have to still consider the spine, especially heading into surgery and anesthesia. So a couple of key things here, with the Down syndrome patients, they have a higher rate of cervical spine instability because of their ligamentous laxity, which causes the extremity problems that they're going to be more commonly treated for. So before you put these kids to sleep, they should get a single upright x-ray to see if it's unstable or not. If you have any questions, then you can go on to get other imaging studies for those patients, especially if they have an osteodontoidium, because then there's a really high rate of instability. Okay, so key key takeaway, upright lateral x-ray for any Down syndrome patient you're planning uh, intervention on, but that is in contrast to the screening criteria, which is if you just have a Down syndrome patient you're monitoring and not planning surgery, there's not a need to just go off and screen them, correct? Right. Good physical exam, um, but otherwise the recommendations right now aren't for standard screening. And we've heard at this meeting already in other sessions, some people preferring FlexX, but you've moved to just a simple lateral. We've, we've shown in studies that it's really hard to get these kids to get good FlexX films, so oftentimes you end up having having to redo it and so we've seen that clinically as long as they're within the right range on a standard neutral um, that that's appropriate and, and enough for these patients. And so similar, somewhat similar to these Down syndrome patients, then you can go on and think about, all right, well, how about MPS patients or other skeletal dysplasia patients? MPS in particular has a really high rate of upper cervical spine instability as well. So these are patients that you want to, again, get a good examination on and also look at their spine before they're gonna be going to sleep. more commonly, you're going to want an MRI in these patients because of the buildup, not so much the instability, but that buildup of mucopolysaccharidosis that happens right at C1, C2. Um, these patients also are at risk for having kyphosis and stenosis further down in the spine. And so, again, these patients, before you put them to sleep for your knees and your hips, uh, your surgeries, you really have to look at the, sur- the spine and make sure the spine is safe because even if they don't have instability, you can put them to sleep. And there's a number of case reports that show them waking up with neurologic deficits afterwards. And so when you're, say, looking at the spine for those patients, the muco- mucopolysaccharidosis patients, and particularly the type 4s, I think we discussed in this session, 
you're advocating for a spine screening MRI, full spine, not just cervical spine. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Perfect. You have to think about the whole spine with these kids. You know, we saw some of the cases and the reports from the people on the panel of paralysis following lower extremity surgery from a mix of ischemia and compression of the cord and just being supine for too long, or maybe the maybe it's the uh, uh, the low blood pressure uh, throughout the case. But uh, it, it's really concerning and really shocking because you don't really consider that as a main complication if you're doing lower extremity surgery. You're not thinking about spinal cord paralysis. What are, what are some of the takeaways or best practices for people who are embarking on lower extremity surgery for MPS? Well, after you are looking at their spine, again, even though you're only operating on, on their extremities, and there's any concern of any stenosis, these patients really should have intraoperative neuromonitoring during these leg procedures. And sometimes it's, it's really interesting where it, the setup for your neuromonitoring is going to take longer than just the small extremity case, maybe putting in some guided growth screws or plates, but it's avoiding really devastating complications. So especially in these MPS4s, um, the, the risks of putting a child to sleep are so high if they have spine involvement, uh, so it's worth the extra time to set up intraoperative neuromonitoring on these kids. Are there other patients you would put on that list who need neuromonitoring during peripheral surgery besides, we talk about Morchio mostly. I think we don't know yet uh, exactly who, and it's more on an individual basis. At our institution in Seattle, we've looked at this with what we call a spine at risk program. And so we've recently put out a publication and we're looking at more with some support of POSNA grants. Uh, to try to f narrow in on the populations that really are at the most risk for this and then to screen them. Right now we screen a large number of patients before anesthesia at, at Seattle and we can probably narrow that down to figure out exactly who needs to be having neuromonitoring. But anyone that has MRI pro proven stenosis signal in their cord, uh, those kids if they're going to have a surgery before fixing and addressing that then they need to be on neuromonitoring. And then speaking of sort of a gray area with at-risk spines, we touched a little bit in the session on osteochondromas and multiple hereditary exostoses. What's your current approach to uh, look for or work up possible exostoses in the spine? So similar, um, we think, again, the high, it's a higher risk of uh, this being a problem being, when they're put to sleep under anesthesia. And so we aren't commonly um, checking out the spine or doing a lot of imaging on the spine without any um, clinical exam concerns. Uh, this is a slightly different population, right, than a really young Morchio patient, because usually the Morchio issues happen younger or uh, Down syndrome who maybe is not gonna be as easily examined. These are patients that can maybe uh, co uh, cooperate with an exam a little bit better right. and tell you a little bit more. Um, and so we're not necessarily doing uh, screening just off the bat, but again, these kids that are going to sleep, you could miss something in their spine. So um, we do get, uh, after the age of, uh, they have to be old, and so at least uh, over three, uh, before they go to sleep, they'll get a single screening um, MRI and then not necessarily another one uh, if they don't have any other clinical exam findings. That's great. It was a great session. Any other any other highlights or takeaways you want to share? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of landmines out there, uh, <laughs> and I think that just we as 
pediatric orthopedic surgeons, I think it's also our responsibility to protect the other surgeons, not just our orthopedic colleagues, but all of our orthopedic, all of our surgical colleagues in the hospital, um, because these patients need other operations too on their uh, their hearts, um, their tracheas, various other issues, and so I think we just want to help raise awareness for everyone in the hospital, for everyone to be safe. That's a great point. Thanks so much, Jen. Yeah, Thanks, well guys. put. Thank you. All right, this is Craig Lauer with the Peds Ortho Podcast. I'm back in the booth with my partner in crime, Carter Clement, as always. And we're joined with a special guest, David Skaggs. Dr. Skaggs, how are you doing? Good. It's good to see you guys. Thanks you for having us. So we are coming out of the, uh, the new session in IPOS 2022. It's for the mid-career surgeon. And Dr. Skaggs had a, a very poignant uh, talk on how to interact with hospital administration. And we thought that it would be a great place to share some pearls. So uh, speaking to our POSNA listenership, what sort of things do you think in a bite-sized format we could share with them that will help them on their careers? So I'll tell you one of the things that I've failed at many times, and I've seen uh, people in the C-suite make fun of surgeons for, and maybe we should just define C-suite because I realize not everyone knows what that means. The C stands for chief. So you have chief executive officer, chief financial officer, chief information officer, chief medical officer. So anyone with the, uh, who's a chief is kind of in that one uh, group of officers in any hospitals, and it's called the C-suite. And so one of the things I've seen especially junior faculty do is they get angry about something and they send an angry email. And what's interesting is uh, medical school deans have taught me that when doctors get mad, it's usually because they're justified and they're fighting for their patients. And yeah. when chairmen get mad, they're Entitled. fighting you know, to take care of their other attendings. Um, so the, the young doctors feel justified in sending this angry email but then oftentimes the C-suite laughs at him and sends it around to other people, and it kind of becomes a permanent example of temporary insanity. Yes. So never send an angry email? Is that the... Yeah, I think that's why Microsoft has made a draft box. <laughs> so if you're feeling angry, write it out, put it in the draft box, and don't send it until the next day, or you can come from a position of love and really caring about everybody and wanting what's best for the institution. And even better, turn it into a phone call or a meeting. Because I think an email is easy to feel kind of anger and us and them and confrontation. And when you're physically with someone, just as social creatures, it tones down the, the combativeness of it. And it's easier to feel that we're all on the same team. Now, you gave a, an example that as you were kind of telling this story and giving the example, I was imagining situations in my own hospital about how to deal with conflict and maybe get things you want when people aren't being responsive. Do you want to maybe share that example or a similar one? Oh, yeah. I remember there was a time when day after day after day, the x-ray tech would show up half an hour late. And we had three attending surgeons, three physician assistants, five nurses, and a whole bunch of patients all waiting for this one x-ray tech to show up late. So I wrote out my angry email, and I'm CCing everybody in the C-suite. And I finally goes, oh my God, this is against what I say to do in my slide. Let me do something different. So I got a bottle of rosé and a thank you note, and I gave it to the, the lead administrator for radiology. And I just said, thanks for being such a great partner. And two weeks later, it was hard to wait, I said, hey, by the way, we're having a little challenge here. You know, maybe uh, your guy over here is having difficulty showing up on time. Bang, situation was done, and everybody felt good about it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I realized, you know, when you come in hot, people feel defensive. 
and you don't end up getting what you want. And even if, if you do get what you want then, they're kind of resentful of you because you were combative with them instead of partnering with them. I think it's all fantastic. Um, it shows some self-control, which uh, maybe some of us need to work on, <laughs> me included. Carter, <laughs> any thoughts? You know, I really like the way you kicked off your talk, talking about the difference in the background between surgeons and members of the C-suite how those backgrounds help us understand sort of how we value relationships versus maybe evidence. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about that sort of uh, (laughs) pathway? Yes, thank you so much for recognizing that. So we got to where we are through individual merit accomplishment. We test well, we get into good schools, we get into good residencies. Like it's, to get into orthopedics now is crazy hard. And it's very, very different for people who become top administrators. They probably didn't go to the best schools, they might not have taken the hardest classes, but what they learn is to build relationships. And business school is all about relationship building, and to move from a junior kind of intern and admin to get to the C-suite, you have to be tremendous at relationship building. So on average, I'd say those leaders have more emotional intelligence than we do as surgeons. And we could learn from them. And I'd love if you could set up a relationship with some of your lead administrators where you ask them to mentor you or give you advice, then all of a sudden your success becomes their success. And the truth is, I learn from those good leaders all the time. I think that it's a way that we can continue to educate ourselves if we make ourselves open to it. That's genius. I think there's some some gold, some really good information for our listeners at home. So hope you all uh, play this back. And uh, Dr. Skaggs, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Pleasure as always. And we are here again in the podcast booth at IPOS 2022. This is Craig Lauer. I am joined by lots of coffee, some pens, uh, lots of snacks, and also our dear friend Jason Brooks, and as always, my co-host Carter Clement. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. So we just got out of the combination problems and syndromes discussion, which is a great morning session where we talked about specific syndromes and all of the complications or conditions involving orthopedics surrounding them. And uh, you spoke uh, in the NPS or the Morkios session. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your role in that session and what you guys talked about? Sure. So uh, first, uh, I would just like to say this is the brainchild of Dr. Tukin Shah. And it's really special because this is what makes us pediatric orthopedic surgeons. When a kid walks into our room, we're not, even though I do spine, we're not just looking at their spine. We're kind of looking at them more globally. And the whole session was uh, basically formed around every different aspect of the child's body that could go wrong uh, given their condition. Um, And so we were looking at uh, mucopolysaccharidosis type 4, which is shortened to Morchio syndrome. Um, And uh, uh, it was... There were some really interesting talks, uh, particularly with regards to the issues with the hip. These kids have bones that don't heal all that well, and so when we do our normal our normal osteotomies, uh, we found that it doesn't heal quite well, or they don't uh, keep their normal shape. And so it was really interesting to hear uh, real hip experts like Woody Sankar from CHOP, as uh, well as uh, Dr. McKenzie from DuPont say that they have no problem doing a shelf osteotomy, which for a lot of us, that's like really a salvage procedure that's almost viewed as a failure. But for patients like this who are already challenging, they have actually had great results. So I I actually learned uh, a lot from that. 
Um, and then I was tasked to look at, well, can medicine save us from potentially operating on these kids uh, with MPS type 4? And the answer is not really, uh, or at least not yet. Um, a lot of the treatments now involve enzyme replacement therapy or stem cell treatment, and all of those may mildly improve their pulmonary function, but it doesn't really improve the musculoskeletal system and the skeletal dysplasias that form. And so, unfortunately, for the near future, we will be operating on these kids a lot. Uh, there are some really cool things coming down the pipeline where uh, they're looking at actually editing uh, these patients' genes, which I think is going to be a real game changer. But that's right now still um, in uh, mice models and uh, early clinical trials, so it won't be ready for our patients anytime soon. So if, if you're sitting around at home thinking, man, Morkio sounds complicated. I don't want to learn about any of this stuff because the medical doctors are going to fix it. Uh, you're going to have to hold on a little longer is what you're saying. Just is that a right, little Jason? while longer. All we right. will have to operate on these kids. So come to IPOS next year and learn about MPS4. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, the only thing I want to add is uh, a kudos to Dr. Brooks here for his presentation. I think it was uh, one of the top ones with a lot of slick animation. I think he has solidified himself as uh, the next John Schinnaker in the future of iPod. So you heard it here first. Dr. Brooks. Oh, gosh. I think, sure I think John's very threatened. <laughs> yeah. That is a compliment. That is a compliment. I'm looking forward to learning more from everyone. So, Always yeah. good having you, Jason. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you. And at this point, we're going to take a little break from the regular programming to hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Depew Synthes, and I am joined by Michelle Merrill, um, who has been with Depew Synthes Spine for four and a half years. She'll tell you a little bit more about her background there. And just as always, I want to remind everyone um, that we appreciate the sponsorship. Depew Synthes is a big sponsor of Posna, and all of the podcast sponsorship goes to Posna, not directly to the podcast. Um, so as always... The sponsorship will only affect the next minute of the show and not the other material. Um, so with that, Michelle, thank you for joining me. And please tell us a little bit about yourself and what exciting stuff is going on at Depew Synthes. Thanks, Dr. Clement. It's uh, great to be here, and thanks for having me. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Michelle Merrill, and I lead our pediatric spinal deformity strategy for Depew Synthes Spine. Uh, and the thing that I'm most excited about right now for what, what we're working on is the launch of our new Altaline Ultra alignment system. And what this system is, is it's a new rod material and associated instruments that was really designed based on feedback from pediatric spinal deformity surgeons to address unmet needs around intraoperative rod flattening. And it features a greater bending yield strength than a 6.0 cobalt chrome in a 5.5 profile. So far, we've received 510K clearance back in October, and we've had some initial cases at places like Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Nemours in Delaware. And overall, the feedback has been really great. So we're looking forward to continuing to roll out the launch. Great. And what is the material the rod's made out of? Uh, so it's a cobalt chrome alloy where we tweaked the internal composition of it uh, to give it that greater strength in a smaller profile. And if listeners are interested in using this rod, especially let's say they already used a Pusynthes spine, so they have a rep and all the instrumentation and everything at their disposal, uh, what's that process like right now? Is this available at all institutions? 
Yeah, uh, so great question. If you're interested in using the rod, you can reach out to your local team who can give you greater updates around timeline for contracting in your area and at your hospital. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, and we'll get back to the show. Again, this is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt's with me, and the meeting is wrapping up. It is late Friday afternoon, and we are with someone who has been responsible for lots of the great educational content this week. We're with Sandra Jarvis Selinger from University of British Columbia, who is a professor of human learning development and instruction. She has been involved in lots of orthopedic meetings throughout the years, including the AAOS Educators course, IPOS, obviously, OTA uh, going forward, and then the AOA Resident uh, Leadership Forum. And we heard from person after person that we should really speak with her this week about sort of what she brought to the meeting. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for the invite. You know, the first thing that I want to ask you is what are some of the maybe top three sort of impacts that you feel like you've been able to contribute to the way education was delivered this week? So I really appreciate that. One of the things that I did was actually ask a couple of orthopedic colleagues what they thought and to kind of align what I thought were maybe my impacts because it's always one of the principal rules that I say it's what you learned is more important than what I taught. And so I think for me, I'm proud of the fact that I have seen over time uh, improved quality of presentations. I think things like less is more, don't to put too much in a short talk, tell a story, those kinds of things have really started to resonate and you're starting to see that change as I'm seeing uh, different talks over time. I think the second thing is one of the things that I try to do as an educator and in my role, I'm an associate dean academic and I deal with faculty development and support of teaching and learning and those kinds of principles, is how do you translate a body of literature like adult education, its language, its principles, its culture, um, its research, into an applicable opportunity to really apply those in these lived situations. I've said it many times before, I don't expect that there's a lot of people that I work with are going to go out and get a PhD like I did, but it's the idea of taking a really good depth and comprehensive understanding and then starting to really apply it in this area and culture and application. So I think the third impact is really um, changing the way that we've embedded feedback into the IPOS experience. And what I mean by that is that there is now faculty members who are peer reviewing other faculty's presentations and giving that kind of feedback, which wasn't happening before. There's feedback that got that's been incorporated into the Top Gun scenario so that residents really understand and are able to act on that. And really, as I said at the top of this, it's the what you've learned is more important than what I teach. And so I think feedback is part of the key of that commitment to change that we want to do, which is what are you going to do when you leave this? week, go back to your home institution, and you can do that through that embedded opportunity for more feedback. Well, congratulations on all these impacts you've had, and I can tell you, uh, we've heard personally just offline, talking to junior faculty members, how impressed they were and how helpful it was to get specific feedback after they gave their talks, just on a whole range of things that immediately made it easier for them to start thinking about how to improve next year. But I think the fact that IPOS invites you here 
and has you involved in the teaching of the faculty on how to be better teachers and all the changes that have been implemented, I think just go to show that the focus of this at this uh, conference really is on taking education seriously and trying to be the best educational conference within orthopedics, if not all medical specialties is really what we're striving for. And um, uh, I'm really, really pleased that, that they brought you on board to do that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I love being partners in these kinds of opportunities. So uh, we are here for the last time in the recording booth of 2022 IPOS. Craig and I are joined by this year's director, Dr. Sukin Shaw, and next year's co-director, because they'll be working together, Dr. Derek Kelly. Uh, welcome, guys. So, yeah, Thank you. Welcome. We've, uh, we've got some drinks on the table, so it feels like the party's finally getting started. <laughs> and um, first of all... This is a special meeting to a lot of us. We already feel that way at this point in our careers. You guys obviously feel that way. What are the, some of your favorite things that really makes this meeting so special? Well, I would have to say it's um, the defining characteristic of IPOS is the collegiality of the faculty and how the attendees can get so close to the faculty, literally shoulder to shoulder on the hands-on sessions, up at the mic asking questions. And even after that, in between sessions, the hallway conversations, the career advice, it's been amazing. And I think the signature other characteristic is the quality of these lectures and these sessions and the preparation involved in this meeting is unbelievable. And I have to give tremendous gratitude to, to our faculty who work so hard, but it's a labor of love. They're passionate about it, and it's fun. Yeah, world-class faculty. Yeah. For me, it's, it's really the friendships. I mean, these are where all of my friends are. I mean, I've got a few friends outside of orthopedics, but most of my friends are here. And so I just look forward to this. That COVID year where we missed this was just such a disappointment. And to come back and to hang out with all my friends and my mentors. I mean, I've got Steve Frick walking down the hall, and I can grab him, and I can get 10 minutes with him just to talk about what's going on. And now as I get a little further in my career, and I'm put in charge of maybe starting to mentor some younger people to get to see how their careers are advancing. So it's the hallway conversations in between the lectures that are really kind of the thing I look most forward to. And so, obviously, world-class faculty, lots of people stand out, but I know you guys have a list right now of some of the award winners who really stood out the most this year. Could you uh, take us through that? Sure. Um, Authors Preferred Techniques uh, is is a master class in how to perform a procedure, really video-heavy, lots of discussion afterwards on tips and pearls. And this year, uh, runner-up was Julie Samora, who talked about second victim syndrome, and it was a really gripping, uh, important uh, lecture. And I remember thinking that it was absolutely silent when she was speaking, because everyone was putting themselves in her shoes during that moment, which was really powerful. And the winner was Don Bay, who um, really gave a great talk on Z-plasties, which some people are really intimidated by. But I really loved his approach in being simple and strategic about it, and that was a great presentation. And the animations were so cool. I felt like I could do all those surgeries uh, watching those animations. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like the key to author's preferred technique winner is to be in Boston with access to their (laughs) audiovisual team that can put together these amazing visualizations that make it so so easy to learn. Uh, And then from the the younger um, side of things, the the younger learner, uh, we have two competitions uh, throughout the week. Uh, The biggest one is Thursday night 
with Top Gun. I don't know if you guys ever participated in Top Gun, we but did. it, it yeah. is so much fun. We won't talk about my performance. There. <laughs> it's, it's, organ, it's organized chaos. I mean, it, there's, there's open bar for the participants, and then all the faculty are in costumes because there's a, a concurrent costume contest, and everybody's <laughs> excited about that. And then there's a competition underneath that, and so their skills, uh, distal radius fracture reduction and casting, Ponsetti casting, uh, pedicle screw placement, and uh, derotation maneuvers. This year, for the sports session, we did surgery on bell peppers. So the little nanoscopes going in and doing sedectomies and passing sutures around parts of the bell pepper. We've got the team challenge where uh, three of the participants work together on solving the crisis of losing motor signals during a complex Scully case. And then you've got skiffy screw placement for um, for skiffies. So they go through each of these things and everyone is scored. Uh, this year, uh, as every year, we have a winner. Uh, we had uh, first, second, and third. Uh, third place was uh, Amy Steele at the uh, Harvard Combined Program. And then uh, David uh, Liu, uh, also at Harvard, was second. And then uh, Chris uh, DiFrancesco uh, from HSS uh, almost got a perfect score on the on his uh, efforts. So that was Has super exciting. Has there been anyone well, who's ever got a perfect score? No one's ever got, not that I'm aware of, no one ever got a perfect Congratulations score. Congratulations. He got really yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well That's fantastic. super cool. And then the costume contest uh, group, which yeah, is now hotly, let's get to that. hotly yeah. debated. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of frustration every year when this uh, when this comes out. But this year, it was uh, the, the Medtronic-sponsored uh, pedicle screw team that dressed up like 80, 80s hair bands. Uh, and what really sold them on the win is many of them put on those like somewhat temporary tattoos. Yeah. Uh, Mike Lotzbecker had an entire sleeve of tattoos, <laughs> which I'm sure are going to be stuck to his arm for weeks to come because <laughs> those things don't come off easily. Uh, so that was super cool. And also, every year on Tuesday night, uh, the resident scholarship award winners uh, compete in a uh, case presentation competition, and there's a winner for that every year. And uh, this year's winner was Jonathan Graybow, a PGY4 from uh, Kentucky. Uh, he did a, a case presentation on a humeral condyle fracture. Very impressive. And then um, another question for you guys about the innovation of IPOS. This is, I think, the premier educational conference within orthopedics. Uh, what is it that keeps it fresh? And uh, what have we got planned for the future? Well, I like giving something back to the faculty. So we definitely do faculty development to make them better teachers and speakers, which has been fantastic exercise with Sandra, uh, whom you spoke with earlier. But the, um, the I and IPOS is also innovation. Uh, we'd love to integrate more simulation, perhaps virtual reality in the future. We did an elbow pinning exercise where we had a simulated supraconylar fracture. The um, attendees were instructed on proper pin configuration, got to put the pins in. Maybe next year we bring in Hologic sort of low-dose X-ray and they get immediate feedback on radiographically too. We just want to continue to innovate and make this meeting better. We have a lot of uh, faculty who do a lot of education in their home programs, regionally, nationally, internationally, and they have all these great ideas on high-fidelity and low-fidelity hands-on simulation models. And we get to pick the best of those, bring them here, try them out. The ones that work great, we keep. The ones that are not so good, well, we'll modify it the next year. But there's lots and lots of those things to do. That's great. We're probably convincing a lot of people at home that they need to sign up for iPods 2023. So you guys will be co-directors. What does our group have to look forward to? Well, it's going to be here in Orlando again at the Lowe's Royal Pacific, December 5th to the 9th. And the core representation of all the subspecialties will obviously be there. We're definitely going to have Authors Preferred Techniques, which is a real premier event. 
I think the, the program this year in terms of that second general session where we talked about syndromic complex disorders and how you need a multidisciplinary team and be thinking about other things just besides your area was really well received. And uh, if we repeat that, we've got to consider different conditions and different disorders that are going to be treated the same way. And another new thing this year, which um, was a complete experiment, was our mid-career course that we're branding IPOS XC. It was awesome. Yeah? Really awesome. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you thought so. Um, we'll get the feedback from that, and if it was positive, um, we'll continue to innovate that. And I think the need and the ask is that there needs to be something here for uh, the soft skills, the crucial conversations, the strategy, the leadership and things that just aren't taught in residency and fellowship, but that we can bring to pediatric orthopedic surgeons as a gap. I thought it was really cool that it was like all these sort of soft concepts, but the faculty members brought the sort of IPOS mentality to it, where they hit these like very high yield, six minute talks or however long with very concrete takeaways on these soft subjects, which is uh, was very effective. Yeah, that's an iPod signature, I guess. That's right. right. Yep. Starts on time, ends on time. <laughs> a couple other things that, that people can look forward to if they weren't here. Uh, it's 80 degrees and sunny outside. It's beautiful. Uh, my family is here. They're at the pool enjoying themselves. So, you know, bring your family along. If you've not been in a while, please come back. And if you have been here even this year, the content changes every year. The sessions remain relatively stable, but the content within the sessions changes. So if you were here this year and heard a bunch of great talks, those won't be the same talks that are available to you next year. We've got tracks for all types of learners. We've got young learner tracks. We've got advanced practice provider tracks. We've got mid-career tracks. So every stage of your career, there's something here for you. I talked to Peter Newton in the hall the other day as he was holding up the booklet. He says, you guys are running five meetings at once at this course, and it really is very impressive, the amount of material here. So maybe two years in a row to kind of soak all this stuff in. Well, you heard it here. If you haven't been in a while, come on back. There's something for everyone. And if you're a resident and you came this year and you loved it, make sure you tell your junior residents and we'll keep uh, keep filling the pool. Get the best people in orthopedics to come to pediatrics. Yep. Uh, thank you guys so much for spending the time with us. No you're welcome. Our, Glad our pleasure. To thank you very much. Super fun. Super fun.